Chapter 2. Socialization, Separation, and Subcontracting The secret of managing is to keep the guys who hate you away from the guys who are undecided. Casey Stengel A construction site is the shared workplace of workers with lots of different bosses. At many construction sites, people working for a small family business work side-by-side with people working for a large subcontractor. Workers hired by the boss directly or through a union hiring hall coordinate their work with workers hired through a temp agency. Workers with and without legal working papers work next to each other, but for different companies. The various tasks required to put a building together are divided up and made the specialized work of different trades. At a typical construction site, where a luxury condominium high-rise tower is being built, there will be operating engineers to run the dump trucks, backhoes, bulldozers, forklifts, and cranes, iron workers to put together the steel skeleton of the building, framers to put in the structural wood and light metal such as the interior walls and drop ceilings, cement masons to tie together the rebar and pour concrete for the building's foundation, sidewalks, patios, and the walls and ceilings of the underground parking garage. There will be electricians to install the electrical systems, HVAC guys to install the heating, ventilation, and air conditioning systems, plumbers to install the systems that bring in clean water, take out wastewater, and the sprinklers. There will be laborers to unload and distribute materials around the site, to run the more physically demanding machines like jackhammers and tampers, to direct traffic when the work requires tearing up parts of the roads around the job site, and generally to do odd jobs for the general contractor. There will be laborers hired from a temp agency who come in every couple of days to remove garbage from the site. There will be insulators, drywallers, finish carpenters, elevator installers, window and door installers, garage door installers, roofers and siders, stonemasons, floor guys, carpet guys, tile guys. There will be specialized workers to install the carbon monoxide detection system in the parking garage and others to install the security alarms and cameras. There will be landscapers to put in the shrubbery and the rows of palm trees lining the building's entrance. Finally, there'll be cleaners to come in and make the place look nice before prospective condo buyers come and look at it. Some of these workers will be hired by the general contractor directly, but most of them will work for subcontracting companies. The different trades all require different materials and machines, some of which are very expensive. By having specialized subcontractors, costs are lowered and the amount of time that capital is sitting around not making money is reduced. A roofing company doesn't need to buy expensive machinery for making precision cuts to granite countertops, and a tile company doesn't need to buy scaffolding and safety harnesses that allow people to work on the roofs and the sides of buildings. Some of the trades, like the framers or laborers, can spend a year or more on the same construction site, while others, like garage door or security system installers, will be on the site for only a couple of days. This means that it would be necessary to mass-produce houses on a huge scale before it would be cost-effective for one company to hire all the different building workers. By subcontracting, the general contractor doesn't need to keep elevator installers who can't work until the building skeleton is all together on the payroll. And elevator installing contractors can line up a bunch of jobs one after another, keep their workers working, and keep their tools from sitting around rusting. 
Sometimes, it even makes business sense for subcontractors to further subcontract out parts of their responsibility. An electrical subcontractor will get a specialized subcontractor to install just the low-voltage electrical systems. A plumbing company will subcontract out just for the sprinkler system. Subcontracting also distributes risk. Since houses are rarely built from a standardized model, there are all sorts of things to have to be figured out during construction on each specific site. This means that there are all sorts of things that can go wrong and slow down the production of any given building. Disruptions that slow down the work of one trade can easily slow down all the others. If one company did all the work on a particular building, it would take on all the risk. Most subcontractors run several job sites at once, however. They'll be involved in building some condominiums, a mansion, a block of apartments, an old folks' home, and a school, all at the same time. This means that problems at one job can't cascade into other jobs. The risk is distributed more evenly across all the capital invested in house production. Some very small contractors are only able to take on one job at a time. This means that the boss is usually there all the time, supervising his employees. Any contractor large enough to run a couple jobs at once will need foremen. The owner of the company will make bids, buy new equipment, hire and fire people, deal with the general contractor, and travel around to check on the progress of each job. The daily management of each site will be done by a foreman. The foreman is often the only representative of management on site, and it's his job to make us work hard. If he doesn't, he'll get fired. Still, the company's profit is not his profit, so he's a less enthusiastic enforcer than the boss. He can kick us off his job site for not working hard, but often he can't fire us. Usually, the foreman will be an older worker who's been in the trades for a long time and is expected to divide his time between working on the building and supervising other employees. Sometimes, foremen are union members. Whether we respect or hate the foreman, depends mostly on how much he acts as an enforcer for the boss, how much he does his job. Subcontracting means that the workers in the same company are separated from each other, distributed across a number of job sites. At the same time, each construction site has a unified chain of command and starts to look a bit like an individual company. The general contractor runs the job. He sets work rules for the site and can kick workers he hasn't hired off the site for breaking them. He, or a supervisor he's hired, coordinates all the work with the foremen of the different trades, who then pass on orders down to the workers. The bosses of the different subcontracting companies are only brought in to talk about money, or when there's a problem, or if the supervisor wants to put extra pressure on the foreman to get his guys working faster. This means that the general contractor acts like a boss, even to workers he hasn't hired directly. Attitudes to the general contractor or his supervisors tend to be similar to attitudes towards the boss. And we fight against the general contractor as well as our own boss as they work together to try to squeeze more out of us. The work process itself makes us work together in groups and coordinate the work with the other trades. Drywallers take on different tasks and work together in teams to put up the drywall more quickly. The drywallers have to talk to the electricians and plumbers to know whether or not a wire or pipe is supposed to stick out of the wall or be buried in the wall. 
The groups of electricians and plumbers need to talk to each other and to the tile guys and finished carpenters to figure out how sinks, outlets, and tiling, countertops and cabinets fit together. We work with the same people a lot and get to know them pretty well. Conversations that start about how to do the work quickly become about the football game last weekend, about our wives, girlfriends, and kids, about this one crazy iron worker someone knew, and then about how shitty the work is, or how the boss is an asshole. The work is monotonous, and socializing usually means joking around, stapling someone's tools to the floor, locking someone in the porta potty, throwing screws out the window at the guys directing traffic. We give each other strange nicknames and draw on each other's hard hats. We take smoke breaks together and go out for drinks after work. We stop being isolated individuals and form groups of workers who trust each other, work together, and can act together. The biggest obstacle to forming these groups is the division of labor itself. Workers doing more skilled work will think they're better than the apprentices and workers doing less skilled work and order them around. Newer employees will assume that the workers who've been there a while are friends with the boss. When we're all being pushed to do more, faster, it's easy to cut corners in a way that fucks over the other trades. Drywallers will bury electrical boxes meant for lights and outlets rather than take the time to cut holes. Electricians will leave a pile of garbage in a room that gets in the plumber's way. A plumber will smash big holes in the drywall looking for a sprinkler head that was buried. This is a constant source of friction and can lead to arguments and even occasional fistfights. This conflict is made worse because the division of labor is overlaid with cultural differences. The workers doing the less skilled, more physical work are often immigrants who don't speak the language. Often the only one who knows both languages well is the foreman. This division is institutionalized by subcontracting as each company will hire workers from similar backgrounds. The workers in a company form a kind of ethnic community. This means that when workers from different trades are stepping on each other's toes, it's only a small step from those stupid drywallers to those stupid Mexicans, or from those lazy ciders to those lazy Polacks. And workers who are racist against each other don't socialize together and have a very difficult time organizing together against the boss. Unless these divisions lead to fights that actually slow down the work process, they're a good thing from the point of view of the boss. Still, even a racist can feel the surplus value constantly being pumped out of him. At the same time we're assembling a building that will make the boss a lot of money, we're finishing off each paycheck just about the time the next one comes. Even the boss's brother-in-law, who's a snitch, will try to get out of hard work if he can. Even the extreme right-winger who hates it when the government interferes with the rights of private property will steal from work. Even the guy who complains about the lazy immigrants slacks off on the job when he can get away with it. Our hostility to the work doesn't come from our political ideas. It comes from the fact that we're being exploited as wage workers. We have interests that are directly opposed to the company's interests. Still. The less internally conflicted we can become, the better we can get at fighting the boss. We can consciously plan and coordinate our resistance. We can see who our real allies and enemies are likely to be. A company's internal structure and work process create patterns of socialization and separation. 
These are the terrain on which we fight with management, but they're also a weapon in the hands of the boss. We're brought together and divided up in order to pump as much surplus value out of us as possible. But when we work together, we begin to see that we have similar interests, interests that are directly opposed to our boss's interests. As we form groups that slack off, steal from work, and cover for each other, we cut into the rate of profit, and the boss has to respond. He can respond by changing around work patterns. He may supervise us directly, or hire more workers, so the foreman can spend more time making sure we're working hard. Like most decisions the boss makes, though, this will be made on a cost-benefit analysis, and constant supervision is expensive. Instead, he may separate workers he thinks are causing problems. He'll have us work in different parts of the building, or move us around to different construction sites. This can break up work groups and cut down on resistance. It can also mean that a culture of resistance spreads throughout the company. Alternately, he may try to neutralize our informal work groups by joining them or getting someone he trusts to join them. He'll come work with us for a few hours, or take us out to lunch one day. Usually we'll be friendly enough while he's there, and then go back to slacking off once he's gone. More often, he'll send in a different worker he trusts to work with us. Since we're almost always doing less than we're supposed to, this will mean we have to work harder until we can be sure the new worker isn't a snitch. If he's not a bad guy, he'll soon become part of the work group. If he acts like a little boss and tries to get us to work harder, he'll be treated like one. He'll get a nickname like Office Bitch or Ass Face, and no one will help him with any tasks unless the boss is standing there watching. People won't talk to him, and his work will be made miserable until he asks to work by himself or with someone else. We know how to use socialization and separation as well. Standing up for each other, forming groups, corrupting workers who sympathize with the boss, and exposing and excluding snitches, this is what the everyday struggle at a construction site is made of. When it's going well, it can make our lives a lot less miserable. It's the foundation for any larger fight against management. Chapter 3. Skill and Backwardness I will make houses like they make cars. Le Corbusier Houses are not just built for profit. The work process used to make them is constantly under pressure to change to make as much profit as possible. Individual jobs are broken up into small tasks that can be repeated quickly. In a team of drywallers, one will measure the areas to be covered and screw the sheets to the wall, another will cut sheets to fit, another will come along after and spread tape and spackle over the joints where pieces of drywall fit together, and a fourth will smooth out the mud with a taping knife. When jobs are chopped up like this, we get very good at doing our individual task and can do it quickly and efficiently. At the same time, the work gets repetitive and boring. The machines, tools, parts, and materials we work with are designed and redesigned to speed up the work process or to allow us to do the same work cheaper. The reusable wire nuts that electricians use to connect wires in a light fixture are replaced with quicker push-in connectors built into the light fixture. Plastic snap-in connectors replace steel screw-in connectors. 
The roller, or the paint spraying machine, replace the paintbrush. The nail gun replaces the hammer, and the sawzall replaces the saw. These are all expensive, but they allow the painter, the electrician, or the carpenter to do more work in the same amount of time. When a company first introduces a new machine, it can make a lot more profit because it's producing much more efficiently than the industry average. As a new machine becomes widespread, producing with that machine becomes the new industry average. The labor of the painter is spread out over more walls in a given period of time, and the value of a painted wall drops. A painting contractor has to invest a higher proportion of his money in dead labor, such as paint spraying machines, as compared to living labor. As tasks are divided up between a number of employees, and more and more machines are introduced, jobs tend to become simpler, more repetitive, less skilled. Skilled tradesmen tend to become more like installers, and installers tend to become more like factory workers. As jobs become less skilled, employees need less training, and therefore tend to get paid less and are easier to replace. Still, the carpenter's laser level is nothing compared to the laser checkout scanner used by a cashier. In many ways, the construction industry is very backwards. New technology hasn't been able to reshape the whole work process around it. The only areas of construction that have really been mechanized are excavation and lifting materials, and not even these on some small sites. New machines on a construction site are usually just high-tech tools. They tend to feel more like an extension of our body than something that imposes a mechanical rhythm on our work. Construction materials can be high-tech, but construction is not. The workers adding fiber-optic cables, motion sensors, and solar panels to a house are often using nothing more than hand tools, a cordless drill, and a ladder. In order for new technology and the division of labor to really increase productivity, houses would have to be mass-produced, house production would have to take place on a large scale, and house design would have to be standardized. This has had only very limited success. The units in an apartment building can be designed exactly the same, so after putting the pipes in a few, the plumbers will get the hang of it and be able to go much faster. Still, all the apartment buildings on a block are not the same and all the blocks in a city are definitely different. Trailers and double-wides are made from standardized designs in factory-like conditions and transported to the buyer. But most homes aren't transportable, and designs are different for different locations. Houses have to be built on land somewhere. In order to mass-produce a neighborhood, a developer has to buy up all the land first. This means coaxing or coercing all the different owners of the land he wants to build on to sell to him. Even when they can get their hands on large areas of land, developers often build in small chunks. Houses are extremely durable. Unlike restaurants, or even car manufacturers, the house-building industry can't rely on replacing old houses as a steady source of demand. The building industry tends to boom when the economy as a whole is growing, and to crash when the growth stops. Making an apartment building can take a long time, and the market can change quickly during that time. This creates an extra incentive to build quickly, which means building small. A company building an L-shaped apartment building will sometimes build one wing and make sure it's sold before building the other half. A large company will build a number of small sites rather than one large one. This, as well as the relatively cheap costs of getting into the construction business, means that there are often lots of small contractors competing right alongside the big ones. 
The backwardness of the construction industry is a bad thing from the point of view of productivity, not necessarily for us. The fact that there are rarely standardized designs means that individual workers have to figure out how things fit together, and we often have a lot of room to do things however we think makes the most sense. The architects are never right the first time. The plans for the HVAC system, the windows, the plumbing and the framing will often not work together. After a few jokes at the expense of the architectural profession, we'll have to work with the guys from the other trades to figure out how to make things work. We get an idea of how the whole building has to fit together. We have to think a bit on top of just doing physical labor. The limited use of machines, and the fact that building often goes on at a bunch of scattered, small sites, means that each worker has to learn how to do a number of different tasks. A job from start to finish can take months, and at each stage we might be doing different things. The backwardness of the work process means that the work requires a variety of skills, and quite a bit of decision-making on our part. In this, the job of a skilled construction worker is closer to that of a white-collar worker like a teacher than it is to the job of an auto worker. Keeping in mind how a building has to fit together as a whole, and using a bit of thought and skill at work, makes the job a bit less boring. It doesn't change the fact that we're doing all this to make money for the boss. And once capital can make houses, or teach, like it makes cars, it will. Unlike more specialist white-collar jobs, we have to learn almost all of our skills on the job. Formal apprenticeships often require some classroom time, but this is usually quite small compared to the amount of time spent learning while working. This means that on any construction site, in any trade, workers with lots of experience work side-by-side side with fresh apprentices. Skill and experience are very important in how we relate to each other. The first question a new worker on a job site will usually ask his co-workers is, how long have you been in the trade? And he'll quickly figure who he has more experience than, and who less. Experience in some trades is officially recognized by cards. By working a number of hours, passing a course or a test, skilled tradesmen are legally recognized as journeymen. This usually means more pay and more authority on the job site. In other trades, the skill of different workers and their different wages are just judged by the boss. The boss has to place a lot of trust in his skilled workers. The speed and quality of the work depends on lots of individual decisions about how to use hand tools and how to accomplish tasks. We often work with very little supervision. The boss or the foreman will give us something to do and then check later that what we put together works. In some companies, skilled workers will work on job sites all by themselves. We often are expected to buy our own tools and can choose which ones to buy. The boss of a medium-sized subcontracting company is an outsider and usually doesn't really know what's going on at each of his jobs. He profits from our work and puts pressure on us to do more and faster, but he usually gives us a lot of room to organize it however we want. We like this freedom and are very annoyed when it's attacked. The quickest way for the boss to get his workers to hate him is to force them to work in specific ways. This control over the work can create a kind of professionalism among certain skilled construction workers. There are a lot of real skills we learn, and we can tell which of our co-workers actually know what they're doing. We take a certain pride in being able to do complicated skilled work. We like to use our skills when we can to fix something at home or to help a friend build an addition onto their house. 
This craft pride is the main way that management appeals to skilled workers. There's an attempt to create a kind of community around the trade. The community includes the boss, the foreman, and the skilled journeyman, but not the apprentices who are just learning the trade, and definitely not the workers doing less skilled jobs, like the laborers, landscapers, cleaners, etc. On this basis, the work is seen as just something that needs to be done, and skilled workers are supposed to help enforce it on the less skilled. Tasks are further divided up within the workers. The shittiest work is reserved for the workers newest to the trade. An apprentice might spend his entire first year in the electrical or plumbing trades, digging ditches, carrying heavy materials around the site, sweeping up and organizing parts and materials. An experienced electrician might spend almost all his time doing electrical panels and might take it as an insult if it's suggested that he should help pull wires, let alone help sweep up. Skilled workers will sometimes act like little bosses, ordering around their apprentices and refusing to do anything but gravy work. This is particularly bad when skill and experience don't overlap. As an apprentice, there's nothing worse than doing the shit work for a journeyman who doesn't know what he's doing. All the mistakes somehow magically become your fault, even if you were only sweeping the floor and unloading materials all day. The separation of work into journeyman tasks and apprentice tasks is made worse by the fact that a lot of skill is simply made up. A journeyman who had to do shit work for years before he was taught the trade will think it's unfair when apprentices get to do tasks that are above their skill level. He will artificially inflate the division between journeyman tasks and apprentice tasks, and the apprentices he's working with will hate his guts. True. An apprentice on his first day can't be expected to know how to wire up a building. Still, there's no reason why you should have a year of experience sweeping before you can learn how to pull wires, or that it should take a year of pulling wires before you're ready to do electrical panels. These divisions are not based in the real skill curve. They don't even really help speed up the work process. These differences are mainly there to get skilled workers to take on the boss's perspective. Journeymen always have to do some supervision of apprentices to make sure they know what they're doing, and apprentices usually appreciate a journeyman who will take the time to explain things and answer questions. A skilled worker who acts like a little boss is something entirely different. He's a cost-saving measure. From the boss's perspective, a journeyman who will work at the same time as making sure the apprentices aren't slacking off is the cheapest kind of supervision available much cheaper than hiring a full-time supervisory foreman. Also, since the more skilled workers usually set the tone for the culture of work on a job site, a skilled worker with a strong sense of professionalism can make sure that the work groups that do form are harmless to the boss. This identification with the work is real, based in the loose supervision and the freedom that skilled workers have to self-manage the work. It's also very limited. It begins to crack when it becomes clear that experience and authority in a company are not the same thing. The guy who's got two years of experience gets a company truck, while the guy who's got ten doesn't. The boss's brother-in-law gets to run a site himself, while a more skilled journeyman is passed over. A construction company isn't an institution for building houses and teaching people the skills to build houses. It's an institution for squeezing surplus value out of workers workers who get nothing but a wage out of it and need to be kept under control. 
Building houses and learning skills are quite secondary. The boss gives authority to the workers who he trusts to keep the other ones under control. The boss needs to keep all his employees, apprentices and journeymen, working as hard as possible for as little money as possible. Professionalism loses some of its allure when the foreman asks us, one professional to another, to work on the weekend so he can get a job done on time. It loses even more when the boss yells at us to work faster or he's going to lose money and have to fire us. Differences in skill and experience can divide up the workers and get us fighting each other. It can also just be the background to the work and joking around at work. We'll make fun of the old man who's been in the trade for years, who randomly gives his opinion on all sorts of things, whether they're related to the work or not. The baby shit green apprentice will be told to go get a box of ohms, a left-handed pole stretcher, or some other non-existent tool from the general contractor. After a few jokes like this, he'll get the hang of the work culture and learn the specialized vocabulary necessary to communicate on a construction site. Chapter 4. The Pace of Work Accomplishing the impossible means only the boss will add it to your regular duties. Doug Larson There is no automatic pace of work on a construction site. There's no assembly line for the boss to speed up and no customers to come in all at once at dinner time. With the exception of drying concrete, the materials and machines we work with do not impose a rhythm on the work. We have a lot of room to start and stop working whenever we want. The work process is porous. Carrying around materials, hammering, setting up scaffolding, and untangling extension cords are interspersed with standing around smoking, telling jokes, and spacing out while we wait for someone to set up scaffolding or untangle some electrical cord spaghetti. The boss needs to keep us working as hard as possible and get the most out of us he can. In a small company where we work with the boss, this can mean that he's there personally, yelling at us to hurry the fuck up. In a larger company, this is the job of the foreman. Since we're usually making very visible changes to the building, the supervision doesn't need to be this tight. The foreman can just stop by and see how much we've gotten done, and the boss of a subcontracting company can come to the job site once every week or two to check up on his foreman. This loose supervision is less miserable than being yelled at constantly, but creates its own problems. There are all sorts of things that can delay the work. Tools break. We have to wait for someone else to use the forklift to get our materials up to the floor we're working on. Garbage is left where we're supposed to be working. The plans are wrong, and we can't do things the easy way. All sorts of problems come up, and we have to figure out how to get around them. The looser the supervision, the more these are our problems. When the boss wants to know why something hasn't gotten done yet, we'll always bring up these technical problems, whether they're the real cause or not. This means that the boss, who used to be a journeyman and went into business for himself, is often the worst kind. He knows how long things should take, and can tell what's a serious problem that should really cause a delay, and when we're just using technical problems to cover up slacking off. Another way for the company to keep us working hard is to pay peace wages. This is usually only done for jobs where it's easy to measure how much work is getting done. 
Drywallers will often have part of their wage tied to the number of sheets of drywall they put up. This gives them an incentive to work faster. Where some drywallers are paid partially in piece rates and some on straight hourly wages, this creates a division between them. Some will try to go faster, and others will try to go slower. The ones who want to go faster are often the more experienced workers, and are often given some authority to supervise the other workers. Instead of being pushed directly, workers who get piece rates have an incentive to push themselves and their co-workers to go faster. The job is more stressful, since we have to worry about how fast we're working ourselves. It doesn't mean we're working for ourselves. It doesn't make the work less boring. It just changes the way that the pressure to work harder and faster is applied. The fewer breaks we take, the faster we work, the more work we get done in a day, the more surplus value the company squeezes out of us. The faster we work, the more likely we are to have accidents or to get repetitive injuries. The harder we work, the more work is likely to eat up our free time. When we get home from work, we'll be too tired to do anything but take a shower. The less time we spend talking to our co-workers, the more boring the work is. We push in the exact opposite direction as the company. We're constantly trying to slow down the pace of work as much as possible. This requires a lot of coordination. We have to find ways to slow down even the workers who are friends with the boss or the new workers that we don't know and trust yet. If the foreman sees someone working slower than everyone else, they'll get yelled at and, if it keeps happening, fired. Since we often work in loosely supervised teams, the foreman doesn't know exactly who's working hard and who isn't. If one worker starts slacking off, the other workers he's working with will get mad at him because they're having to work harder to pick up his slack. No one likes a lazy individualist. A coordinated collective laziness is much better. Often, this happens without much thought going into it. A worker with more experience will find a lot of minor problems with the work of the new guy who's been downing energy drinks all day and working twice as hard as everyone else. This will slow him down to an acceptable rate. The culture on the job creates a standard for how much work we do and how much time we spend smoking, talking, hammering the wall pointlessly. A tone is set for all the workers on a job site, whether they've been explicitly told to slow the fuck down or not. Still, the stronger the work groups, the more ambitious we can be in slowing down the pace of work. On a job with lots of workers who trust each other and consciously plan together, we can slow the pace of work almost to a stop, and it's very hard for the boss to target any one worker as the lazy one or the troublemaker. Depending on the balance of forces, the pace of work in a company at a specific construction site is somewhere between fast and intensely stressful, and slow and exasperatingly boring. No matter the pace of work, we're still at work. Sometimes, when we're completely unsupervised, we can cut out a couple hours early and say we worked a full day. Usually, though, we're stuck there, making shit for someone else to sell all day long. On a sunny day, when there's no problems, and we have some running jokes all day long, things fly by. We can be done before we know it. On a cold, rainy day, when we have to work in the mud and keep running into problems and the foreman is yelling at us, it takes forever. Whichever it is, it's that part of our lives that we just want to be over. 
slowing down the work doesn't necessarily make it go by faster. Sometimes, the boss won't be there and we could sit around and do nothing, but instead, we'll work just to make the time pass quicker. The boredom can really get to us. New construction workers quickly pick up the habit of talking to themselves. At first, this is just to be able to think while people are driving dump trucks around or using nail guns right next to us. But it quickly becomes singing to ourselves, talking in strange voices, and doing imitations of the boss or various celebrities to create gaps in the boredom. Chapter 5 Safety and Self-Destruction I've never read Marx's Capital, but I have the marks of capital all over me. Bill Haywood A construction site is a dangerous place. We're working on the edge of roofs, under heavy loads of material, next to gas pipes and live electrical lines, around heavy equipment and vehicles, with sharp power tools. Almost as many construction workers die or get injured on the job as miners, loggers, or prostitutes. Safety costs money. Roofers have to be paid for the time they're setting up and putting on safety equipment, as well as the time they're actually putting up tar and shingles. Harnesses, carabiners, rope, hard hats, and goggles cost money. This means that there's always pressure on safety measures to be cut back in order to make more money for the company. This leads directly to accidents and deaths. Roofers fall and die because their boss was too cheap to buy safety harnesses. Parts of buildings collapse and kill the workers inside because the boss was cutting costs and using cheap materials. Still, killing off your employees, especially hard-to-find, experienced employees, is not usually a viable business plan. For the good of the industry as a whole, and under pressure from the workers and consumer groups, the state imposes safety rules and regulations on construction companies. There's a huge body of law that dictates exactly how and where different kinds of materials should be used to prevent fire, electrocution, and collapse. Buildings have to be repeatedly inspected and signed off on by government building inspectors at each stage of construction. The law also lays down rules about how work should be done and which safety equipment is required for which tasks. Companies caught with serious safety violations can get huge fines or be shut down, which creates a counterweight to the incentive to skimp on safety to make more money. Sometimes, general contractors will even have stricter safety policies than are required by law. But the law is one thing, reality is another. Small contractors who work on individual homes rarely see safety inspectors and tend to have much lower standards of safety. Large contractors often have relationships with building inspectors, and an inspector who knows a contractor will sometimes just sign off on a building without looking at it. He'd rather stand around and talk, or go have a coffee, than spend an hour carefully looking at everything. Safety laws are usually only closely enforced when the company has had accidents already, and the pressure to cut back on safety measures can't be legislated away. A general contractor building a high-rise will require all the workers on the site to come to a safety meeting once a week. He'll lay down strict safety rules, give out or sell hard hats and safety goggles to anyone who needs them, and tell everyone that they should report any safety violations they see. 
Then he'll call up the owner of the subcontracting company putting in the structural steel and tell him he needs to hurry up or the building's skeleton won't be done on time. The boss comes down to the site the next day and tells the foreman he's not doing his job and he's got to push the guys harder. The foreman now tells the iron workers to quit using harnesses when walking around on the beams because it takes too much time and asks them to work overtime every day for a week. A bunch of sleep-deprived iron workers are now walking around six stories up on thin steel beams without harnesses. If the general contractor has held safety meetings regularly and posted strict safety rules around the site, he's in a better position when he's sued by the family of the iron worker who falls to his death. Whatever the intentions of the individual capitalist with his money invested in house building, the need to cut costs and increase the pace of work itself undermines safety at a construction site. But it's not just the boss who breaks safety rules. When the foreman is pushing us to get things done faster, it's often easier to cut back on safety procedures than to actually work harder. We'll reach dangerously out a window rather than take all the time to put on a harness. A lot of safety regulations seem completely pointless. We know from experience better than the people who write the laws where and how to do the work safely. We usually see safety rules as more annoying than helpful and resent when the general contractor yells at us for taking our hard hats off while smoking a cigarette next to the building. Also, safety laws don't only target the boss. If a safety inspector sees an iron worker without a harness, the company will be fined, but also the iron worker will have to pay a fine, equal to a few days or maybe a week's wages. If he's caught with less immediately life-threatening safety violations, he might just be sent home for the day. This means that on most construction sites, workers, foremen, and general contractors from different trades work together to get around safety rules. We'll warn each other if someone sees a safety inspector and temporarily follow all the rules until he's gone. People die, fingers are chopped off, legs are crushed, eyes are cut up in spectacular accidents. Usually, though, the destruction of our bodies happens much slower. Safety is not usually our main concern. Construction is hard on the body. We breathe in fumes from glues, paints, tar, as well as cement dust, wood chips, mold, and insulation. We get bruises, scrapes, cuts, burns, and splinters almost daily. The more repetitive the jobs, the more likely we are to get repetitive strain injuries. If we've been working standing on a ladder all day, our feet will hurt. If we've been drilling all day or using power tools, we'll get shooting pains and numbness in our fingers. If we've been working low to the ground, our knees and back will be the source of the pain. At a construction site, bad backs are produced at almost the same rate as houses. The work of even the most skilled trades requires a lot of physical effort, and not the kind of physical effort that keeps you in shape. It's the kind that makes your body slowly disintegrate. Anyone can see how rough the work is by looking at the difference between a guy who's been a general contractor for decades and a guy who's been a laborer for the same amount of time. The pain comes in on top of the boredom or the stress, and people have different ways of dealing. We take ibuprofen by the fistful and try to get our hands on stronger painkillers whenever possible. We quietly have a beer or two during breaks or subtly smoke pot out of a hollowed-out hex screwdriver. This is officially frowned on for safety reasons. Workers caught drunk or high are kicked off the job and often fired. 
If we do have a serious accident and it's found out that we were drunk or high, we can sometimes be denied workers' compensation. Drugs are often unofficially tolerated, however. The general contractor pretends not to notice the flask in the forklift operator's coat pocket because he knows that without it, his hands aren't steady. The boss takes aside one of his guys who's smoking weed and tells him, I don't care, but if you're caught, you're on your own. Sometimes drugs even help get the job done quicker. A team of drywallers come in on the weekend, blast some dance music, take ecstasy, and do the whole job while rolling. When the iron workers have to work overtime, the foreman gives them all a line or two of cocaine to keep them awake and motivated. The addition of alcohol, marijuana, or other intoxicants to the already dangerous combination of power tools, heights, and lack of sleep increases the danger of serious accidents at the same time it helps to alleviate the pain and boredom. The drugs help create a little distance from ourselves, as our bodies are steadily worn down. This kind of self-destruction is not really thought out, but it does have a certain logic. The real horror of this logic can be seen when workers purposely injure themselves to get workers' compensation. Although this is very rare, the boss often suspects it. More common is that when we know, somewhere in a back corner of our mind, that if we get hurt, we'll get decent workers' compensation or disability pay, we take more risks at work. Our own activity at work is so miserable that self-destruction can seem like an alternative. More often, though, we just try to fake injuries or sickness to get a few days off. Injuries and accidents bring the class relation into sharp and infuriating contrast. When old, rusty scaffolding collapses and a worker dies, it's clear that the company's push to cut costs costs the worker his life. But it's no better if the company had the newest scaffolding and the best safety equipment. Management doesn't fall off roofs. We do. Even the good worker can't escape. He's worked hard, turned a screwdriver repetitively for 30 years, made a lot of money for the company, and never had a major accident in his life. One morning, he reaches for his coffee mug and his elbow just gives out, never to work right again. Whether our bodies are used up slowly or quickly, whether our bosses are basically good guys who are trying to be safe or are greedy bastards who don't give a shit about their workers, the fact remains that we end up with the injuries and health problems, and they end up with the profits. Chapter 6 Macho Shit The assumption of one role after another, provided he mimics stereotypes successfully, is titillating to him. Thus, the satisfaction derived from a well-played role is in direct proportion to his distance from himself, to his self-negation, and self-sacrifice. Raoul Van Eigham The macho construction worker is a widely recognized cliché. The construction site is often referred to, and denounced, as a model sexist workplace. Whether construction workers are more prejudiced than men working at hospitals, universities, or used car lots is an open question. A question that misses the point. Construction work remains male. Although the number of women doing construction work has grown, women are still only a very small percentage of construction workers, and it's quite common for there to be no women at all on any given job. With no women around, construction sites can sometimes have the feel of a high school boy's locker room, 
things that would get you reprimanded in most workplaces and lynched at a university are common on a construction site. Of course, it's hard to just be one of the guys if you're a woman. Where the work culture is filled with macho shit, it can make the lives of women workers absolutely miserable. Often the image of the sexist construction site is enough to keep women from even considering working in construction. The image reinforces the conditions it grows out of. When a bunch of guys are together in the same place, often the first thing they talk about is women. Getting to know the new guy on the job often starts with asking about his woman. Everyone wants to see pictures of each other's wives and girlfriends, preferably naked ones. Talking about women is an easy way to socialize, because everyone's got something to say. Openly gay construction workers are incredibly rare, but the old cliché that the most vocally homophobic guy on the site is a repressed homosexual is often obviously true. Just being one of the guys is a way to form some community, but it also shapes that community. The limited use of machines to replace tasks done by workers means that the work requires a lot of strength on the part of the worker. You have to be tough to do the work, and the fact that no one cares if you show up for work unshaven and with a black eye adds to the image of toughness. Often an important part of getting the respect of the other workers is to prove that you're man enough to do the job. Being macho becomes part of the job, and being able to do the job makes you one of the guys. This happens more with the trades that are more dangerous and physical, like ironwork, but can happen in any construction job. Being just one of the guys has its uses and appeal. Any time a moderately good-looking woman walks by the site, it's time to take a break and check her out. Time spent talking about or checking out girls is time spent not working. Also, in addition to getting respect for skill and experience, we get respect for being hard. In this, only the electrician who broke his knee because he got his hand stuck on a feeder wire in the ceiling and had to kick out the ladder from under him is on the same level as the iron workers. Like racial or cultural communities, the identification based on playing the role of the macho construction worker creates a community that includes the workers and the boss. Unlike racial or cultural communities, it doesn't function on a construction site to divide the workers against each other for the simple reason that there are very few women construction workers. It works, but not by playing men and women workers off against each other. Being a tough guy is not mainly about admiring the developer's assistant's tits or talking about which of the girls who work at the bar down the road you'd like to fuck. Being a tough guy means working on live electrical wires rather than stopping work to go down to the electrical room and turn them off. It's not bothering with safety equipment. It's working overtime anytime the boss needs you. It's continuing to work when you're injured and not complaining about it. It's lifting heavy materials yourself rather than getting someone else to help with them. Macho shit is profitable. We do things that make the boss more money and are directly against our own interests. All we get in return is the respect of being one tough motherfucker. Imaginary respect compensates for real lack of respect, and machismo becomes an ideology. Although it can be very useful for the boss, a macho atmosphere doesn't exist on every construction site. In order to keep up the atmosphere and to be just one of the guys, the boss and the foreman have to play along. This means lifting heavy shit and doing dangerous jobs themselves, rather than always getting us to do them. 
obviously an unattractive prospect. Also, in companies where men and women work together and do the same jobs, this kind of machismo loses its coherence. The ability to do the job stops being a sign of being a real man, and the social side of a bunch of guys standing around talking about girls loses its connection to working hard and being tough. It stops being profitable. A machismo that includes women is not impossible, but a far weaker ideology. Still, construction companies that employ lots of women are rare, and being a construction worker continues to mean being one of the guys. In this atmosphere, the women who do work for any length of time in construction tend to be tough, competent, and to have a lot of balls. Chapter 7 Blue Collar Blues It's a big job just getting by with nine kids and a wife, but I've been a working man dang near all my life, and I'll keep on working, long as my two hands are fit to use. I'll drink my beer in a tavern, sing a little bit of these working man blues. Merle Haggard, from Working Man Blues With nothing to sell but our ability to work, we're dependent on finding a buyer. But we can't separate our ability to work from ourselves when we sell it. We, unfortunately, have to be there, although the time is no longer our own. Our activity at work is not an expression of our lives, but something separate from them. We have to spend our time working for someone else to be able to exist on our own time. We both need and hate the work. We find all sorts of ways of dealing with this contradiction. With work eating up most of our time, we try to cram as much into our free time as possible. We'll get completely wasted on Friday after work, go to the movies, go out to eat, go to the game, try to get ourselves as worn out as possible. Although work is separated from the rest of our lives, the need to make sure that work time is filled with as much work as possible creates on the other side a need to make sure that leisure time is filled with as much leisure as possible. And of course, the more expensive things we do in our free time, the more we'll have to work to afford them. We feel cheated if we just rest up on the weekend. Even when we're not specifically commuting to work or washing our work clothes, work time shapes free time, although the two can only exist in contrast. When we're unemployed, this need to spend our free time fades away, and we tend to become lethargic, partially because we have no money to go out, but also because the contrast doesn't exist anymore. Another way to cope is to try to convince ourselves that we don't mind the job. On a nice summer day, when we're covered in mud and insulation, we'll tell ourselves, at least I'm not stuck in an office. When the foreman's yelling at us, we'll say, at least I don't have to deal with customers. Sometimes this even works. Anyone who does the same job for a long time has to take some interest in it or go insane. We're proud of our abilities, even if they get used up in pointless ways. This pride or attachment to our work can be the basis for a positive, almost respectable identity. Although officially, anyone can become a rock star or a politician, unofficially, everyone knows this isn't true. That vast majority of us will spend most of our lives trading our lives for a wage. Our only asset is our ability to work, and we develop a view of ourselves based on that. During an election, 
There's a certain appeal when politicians talk about how the average Joe works hard and still gets no respect and can barely make ends meet. As being working class becomes an officially recognized identity, it becomes a stereotype of itself. The working man does manual labor, likes his religion, his porn, his sports, his shitty beer, and his unhealthy food. The working woman is the same, but is a stay-at-home mom, or works as a waitress, a hairdresser, or a secretary, and likes women's magazines and rom-coms instead of porn and sports. These images grow out of reality, but also impose themselves back on that reality. The working class becomes a sociological category, or several, defined by income and lifestyle choices, which can then be marketed to by businesses and pandered to by politicians. It's not that a broader, more inclusive image of what it means to be working class would be less exploitative. A female or transgendered construction worker who eats organic vegetarian food can be put to work and have surplus value sucked out of her, just like a male construction worker who eats hamburgers. Capital can tolerate any number of identities and lifestyles and make money off them. It's not representations themselves that are the problem. Everyone develops some kind of images of their lives and their work. Without some images and representations of what it is to be working class, we would all feel like failures and hate ourselves for not being movie stars, professional athletes, supermodels, and CEOs. Blue-collar identity institutionalizes a certain resentment of the rich. The poor worker does all the work, while the rich make obscene profits. Our daily struggle to survive is glorified. It's a positive identity, based on the very thing that we hate, the fact that we're forced into wage labor. Politics built on this identity, like all identity politics, are inherently conservative. A pathetic moral superiority and resentment take the place of an ability to change our situation. It's the ideology of the wage laborer who can't imagine any way out of wage labor. But ideology and action are not the same thing. No matter how fatalistic or unimaginative we get, the hatred of work and the desire to escape from it come out. An older worker takes a certain pride in explaining something to a new apprentice. At the same time, he tells him to go look for a different, better job. We often have to lie, bargain, and negotiate with ourselves to get out of bed every morning. The guy who's been complaining about how he needs to make some more money finally gets some overtime and works all weekend. Then he spontaneously calls in sick Monday and Tuesday, almost canceling out the overtime. It's not blue-collar pride that keeps us going to work every day. Class is a social relationship, not an identity. Every day we work, we make houses, but we also reproduce that relationship. The company makes a profit, and once again, the boss needs to hire us to keep his capital in motion. We end up with a wage, and once again, no way to make money but to sell our ability to work to someone else. We're recreated as workers. This class relationship is the starting and ending point of capitalist production. Different images are associated with different kinds of wage labor. We want to stop being working class.